Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Very glad to have you all with us today. Let's get right to the panel because it's a good one to talk about some uh, great stories that have developed in the news over the last 24 hours and more. It's Thursdays, which means that it's Thursday, which means that Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the boss himself is with us. Kevin, I want to start by saying I realize that today's one of those days when you kind of wish we were a sports show because last night the Atlanta Hawks made history coming back. At one point they were down 26 points to Philadelphia. In the third quarter with just two minutes left, they were down 24 points and they had a 40-point to 19-point run in the fourth quarter to come back and go ahead in the series three games to two. Astonishing, Kevin. Absolutely. Of course, Atlanta fans are used to being on the other side of stories like that. So it was a very emotional win. And I've heard from friends and people who watched the game and stayed up for it uh, and didn't give up on the Hawks. So, uh, yeah, it's too bad. We, we've got even more interesting things to talk about than that, though, Bill. Yeah, but that's a pretty big talking story. By the way, the other story in the news today that affects the Coca uh, the Coca Cola company is that in the Euro Cup yesterday, uh, yesterday, yesterday, Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the great great stars of European soccer, um, Coca Cola is a sponsor of the Euro- European Cup, and uh, he removed the Coca Cola bottle sitting in front of him at the news conference and asked for water instead, saying it was a, a much more healthy thing to drink. And according to your reporting in the AJC, Kevin, uh, the Coca Cola stock lost like maybe a billion dollars as a result of that. So there's a, just two interesting sports stories that uh, have something to do with Atlanta in the news today. All right, that said. We are also joined today by State Representative Terry Anulowitz, who represents Smyrna, a Democrat. Terry, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Bill. Leo Smith is uh, back with us. He, of course, is a Republican strategist and um, also runs a company known as Engaged Futures, which works on building coalitions to um, deal with issues like education and other matters that um, attract his interest and attention. Um, Leo, you told us before the show that your actual name, in fact, is Leonardo. So, Leonardo Smith, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm looking for uh, whether it was Donatello. Maybe he'll show up on the show as well. (laughs) (laughs) And Professor Andre Gillespie is with us as well, professor of political science at Emory University, of course, and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Hi, Andra. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm glad you're back with us today. So let's get right to it. Um, Kevin Riley, so the now the House and Senate have both passed by overwhelming numbers. The Senate passed unanimously. The House had some Republican dissent, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they have passed and sent to President Biden a bill that would establish June 19th as a federal holiday honoring Juneteenth. And this will become a day that essentially 
will um, give us a chance to celebrate the final end of slavery in the United States. Kevin, uh, momentum has been building since last summer, since the awful deaths of George Floyd and others, uh, towards a more uh, robust understanding of what we are as a country in terms of our dealing with race. Have we reached this sort of elusive inflection point that people talk about? Is this another step toward reaching that point? Well, I think uh, we can probably say it's a step, but but I, I think it's largely symbolic, right? Because um, let's face reality. I mean, we've had a, a Martin Luther King holiday for a long time now. Uh, at least it's honored. Uh, it's a federal holiday. There's it's not quite honored in some areas of the country. And now we, we have another holiday. Um, and in the end, uh, it's not insignificant, I believe, but I, I think that it's important to remember that um, so often holidays uh, can lose their meanings and they turn into long weekends for people rather than moments of reflection and understanding. Andra? You know, I, I don't disagree with Kevin. We talk about this when I teach this uh, um, in my African-American politics class. We often talk about symbolic versus substantive politics. And we talk about, uh, you know, things that have been done um, to kind of, you know, genuflect that, you know, uh, the history uh, that marked African-Americans as being marginalized in the United States. And then we talk about that compared to substantive things that might uh, cost a lot of money or actually start to, like, you know, require governed behavior in, in ways that are different. And so uh, federal holidays are kind of this interesting thing. So the federal government is going to put skin behind this. By giving people the day off, they're actually spending money um, on this. Like, they've got to pay all of their employees for this particular day, but yet it is a holiday, and it does risk becoming commercialized um, at some point. And so that's something that people are going to have to be vigilant uh, to, uh, you know, to fight against and to guard against and to remember what the meaning of this holiday is the same way we do that for Martin Luther King Day or Sunday. We want the same way that we want to do that in the same spirit. We want to do that for, for Veterans Day. Um, you know, at the same time, symbolic politics matters. Um, and so I don't want to discount that, um, even though I think it's important to point out that Juneteenth, is, you know, is getting passed with relative ease, whereas the other substantive things that come out of last summer, like the George Floyd Policing Act, still have a very, very, very long way to go. And so this is the low-hanging fruit. There are still other things that need to be done, even though this is a very powerful and symbolic moment. Um, and Leo, we should re remind our listeners that the Martin Luther King holiday took a very long time to be passed by states around the country. This went through Congress with lightning speed. And, and so there is something about this that strikes me as a little bit different, although we certainly can talk in a minute about some of the Republican response to uh, making this a holiday. Leo? Oh, absolutely. I think this is, I'm thinking way back to the Clause 39 of the Magna Carta, Dr. Gillespie. I mean, the idea of life and liberty and this um, happening in uh, uh, 63, but not until 65, two years later, folks finding that we have evolved in our understanding of the rights of men and women in America, and those people finding out about it because disinformation or information didn't travel um, very fast. And and we are struggling now even with information about what life, liberty, and, and uh, pursuits of happiness we're allowed. And I think Republicans should be embracing this. So um, it, it troubles me that in heavy Republican districts, 14 Republicans 
um, decided that they would use this political messaging to be disruptive rather than to embrace actual Republican history. Uh, including, by the way, Andrew Clyde, who was the one member of the Georgia congressional delegation up in Athens who voted against it. By the way, Terry, I want to get you in here, but let me give you another example of some of the opposition. Um, uh, Congressman Matt Rosendale of Montana uh, gave a quote uh, about why he opposed it. He said the bill was an effort by the left, he called it the left, to make Americans feel bad and convince them that our country is evil. It's very very clearly tied to the larger hard left agenda to enshrine the racial history of this country as the prime aspect of our national story, and therefore he brings it in to the whole conversation that Republicans are having about critical race theory. Terry? Yeah, that's, that's a lot to, wow. <laughs> uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would offer that the racial history of our country is the common thread that runs through pretty much every aspect of our country's history. But, um, you know, that's, I guess, I, I, I view Juneteenth, and I grew so I, I lived in Texas for elementary school, middle school, and high school. And so I was always familiar with the holiday. Texas has celebrated Juneteenth since 1980. I moved to Texas in 84. So I, you know, have been aware of this for a while. And when I, I realized in recent years when Juneteenth, especially when the holiday really started gaining more momentum in Georgia, where I've lived for the past almost 25 years, I didn't realize that most people didn't know what Juneteenth was. And so I think it's important that we talk about the holiday. It is a very important day in our nation's history. It is a very important day for black Americans. And I think we need to remember that this is also not an either or conversation. I think it's great. And I think it's wonderful. And I agree that it is very symbolically important that Juneteenth is going to be recognized as a federal holiday. That shouldn't detract or take away from the reality that we also do need to have substantive policy discussions about police reform. We need to have substantive policy discussions about how we approach justice reform in the United States, you know, including civil justice, criminal justice. What do we do as we continue to have the very important and very critical conversation about race? Because these are not conversations that they're not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. These are, this, is, this is just the reality that we live in in the United States. And we, we need to have both of these things. And I, don't, I think we can walk and chew gum. I think um, it will also help to, in the end, as, as Andre points out, um, start the conversation for many, many people who, who may not be aware of, of the significance of the day. And, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, uh, companies will have to juggle whether they're going to really give people that paid day off or stick with their, as many companies do, stick with a set amount of holidays and let people pick which day they, they prefer to um, have off. But uh, it's not uh, as if there's anything bad for anyone with a new federal holiday, the way I see it. Um, Leo, is there a strange sort of two-track uh, uh, messaging going out from Republicans uh, right now over this? So on one hand, you have overwhelming support, as we said, from both parties. Republicans gave it their support for Juneteenth, an actual recognition that there is a history of slavery in the United States that must be acknowledged. And at the same time, one of the major talking points for Republican candidates across the country going into the 2022 cycle is going to be 
and has been about the teaching of critical race theory, about diversity training, uh, and particularly when it comes to uh, uh, critical race theory, this notion that, uh, uh, as we just heard from the Montana member of Congress, um, the Republican suggestion that it's really an effort to make white people feel guilty and to, uh, to, uh, 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 to try to portray America as an evil country. Th- those two tracks are, are kind of interesting right now. They, they are interesting. In, in other words, um, all rhetoric now is interdependent, and one thing plays off of another, and you don't miss an opportunity uh, to take advantage of anybody's dissonance. And right now, this critical race theory discussion, which was an academic niche discussion in the Ivy Towers, has spilled over into politics. And so that has created a reaction, and Republicans politically are using the reaction of their base to this dissonance. Things were not as I thought they were, or I was made comfortable to feel that they are. And so folks are using that as a wedge, unfortunately, and we're not having a lot of academic and clear discussion about what it means. So I still say hashtag teach truth. Okay, but but Andro, I, I guess I should be clearer. It strikes me that based on what many Republican candidates, including Governor Kemp and other Republicans in Georgia, are saying about critical race theory um, being an effort to uh, to to show America as a, a an evil country in many ways, would suggest that you shouldn't teach what happened on June 19th and 1865 because it does remind us that slavery existed. Well, I mean, so the issue, and I think the way that that, that, that many Republicans are going to reconcile this is that this is celebrating the end of slavery. And so the debate is what happens post-1865 or post-1965, so whether or not the lingering effects of everything that happened before these time periods actually still affects people's life chances today. So, um, you know, I'm going to maintain this. I have said this before. Most of the critics of critical race theory have absolutely no idea what it is. If I started throwing out names of the leading sort of proponents of critical race theory, law professors like Kimberly Crenshaw or Richard Delgado, they have no idea who these people are. They haven't read anything about them. But what they've heard is this buzzword. And so what they've heard is, all right, if we're going to start talking about systemic disadvantages that give some people an advantage over others, they internalize that and think that it becomes a personal attack. Or it becomes a group attack, even though this is also a constituency that doesn't want to acknowledge that that whites play group identity politics in the same way um, that, that that everybody else does. And so that's the harder discussion to have. So they're okay sort of saying that slavery ended because they want to view that as ancient history. The debate is, does this affect life today in 2021? And proponents of critical race theory and other lenses by which to view the racial chasms that exist in America argue, yeah, it still does. And they want to say, no, that it didn't. And we need to move past that so that they don't have to sort of um, talk about policy remedies um, or even perhaps have to talk about ways that maybe the more privileged groups might actually need to give up some of their privilege in order to advance the cause of reducing inequality. Harry? Yeah, no, I I agree with Dr. Gillespie. I mean, I I think if people are feeling threatened because of conversations about race in the United States and how historic treatment of black Americans impact 
how we are today and how our society functions today, I think that if your feelings are hurt, you're missing the point completely. You know, whether we want to talk about redlining and real estate, if we want to talk about, you know, the separate but equal education that was in, in place for so many years, which, which was, of course, by no means equal. If you want to talk about how, you know, farmland was sold to black farmers around the turn of the, you know, 19th to 20th centuries. I mean, if you, you know, you can go back to, there are so, you know, you want to talk about equity in sports, you want to talk about, you know, college sports and opportunities. I mean, it, it, there, there are so many aspects where there is absolutely undeniably an element of how we have treated other races in the United States and how we have treated black Americans in the United States. And the fact that, you know, the, you look back at the economy of the Southern United States and how that was absolutely, you know, found the foundation of the economy in the Southern United States was on, you know, was, was having enslaved people to be able to, to do so many of the things that needed to be done in order for the economy to function. I just, I, I don't understand why, there is this ghastly, you know, horror from of, of people who don't want to discuss these things and who don't understand. And again, just because something doesn't impact their daily lives doesn't mean it doesn't impact this country. And and you know, it's 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 frustrating because it's yeah. If your feelings are hurt, you're missing the point. Leo. You know, Bill. You know, I think it's really important um, as Dr. Gillespie has suggested, uh, Terry has suggested that we need clarity about this. And unfortunately, the responsibility for, for delivering clarity on something is the person who pervades the message, who sends out the message. And the academics, honestly, frankly, have not done a very good job. And so the politicians pulled out something they thought they could use as a wedge, this idea of hurting the white psyche. Um, and look, and they, that's intentional. So now we have this responsibility. The five tenets are not threatening. The five tenets are the notion that racism is ordinary and not aberrational. And I think both conservatives and conservatives agree with that. The idea of an interest in convergence, social construction of race. The idea, I mean, you know, most conservatives will argue, yes, race is a social construction. Stop talking about it, which, you know, that latter part there. Huh? But acknowledging that it's a social construction is actually a very helpful conversation. The idea of storytelling and counter-storytelling, who would disagree with that? And the notion that whites have actually been recipients of civil rights legislation, you know, that's not arguable. So if we start there, instead of talking about the methodology and the mechanisms, which is not actually an essential part of the critical race theory, um, then we could probably go somewhere with this. Andre, a question for you. Yeah, I, I just want to ask you this because, um, as as you know, you, Leo, Terry, have all pointed out, this is uh, something to be understood and and to use as a framework for conversation and understanding, right? Um, but the politicians seem to take it as a wedge issue, as Leo points out, and then it forced the conversation around reparations and, and all these other things. Isn't that what's really going on? It's, it is, it, it, it's, it's a way to create a wedge and force conversation around things that are the much more controversial than just understanding history. Well, I, I think that it, it goes a lot deeper than that. So I'm going to disagree slightly with, um, with Leo about this. I mean, I think pointing out the five tenets, I don't think makes it simple or easier to digest or less controversial. I think people are going to argue with it. Um, Right. The, the, I have survey data that would demonstrate that, like, people have a hard time wrapping their head around systemic racism. Like they get the OK, black people shouldn't be enslaved. You shouldn't use the N word. Segregation was a bad idea. 
but it's the rest of it. Um, it's the rest of the sort of like those tentacles or those roots that expand farther that people have a hard time, especially when it does actually hit home and it makes people sort of, you know, have to contend with the ways that they may actually be able to take advantage of things over um, and above other people. And I think that those are, are hotly contested. While I will acknowledge that, uh, you know, my uh, academic colleagues and I guess I, you know, sometimes write obtusely for our, ourselves and not for other people, that's also part of the issue with critical race theory is, is that this is a really highly developed theory that you wouldn't get until you got to college. Um, and really, you wouldn't get probably until you got to graduate school. But now you think when we're teaching 10-year-olds that. But there are parts of it that have seeped into public discourse. So I remember the time when intersectionality was, uh, you know, a college concept. But when I hear Rihanna using it against Taylor Swift, then I'm like, okay, wait a minute. It is now seeped into the mainstream. And so the idea of privilege has seeped into the mainstream. And so that does actually start to talk about systems um, in ways of thinking that makes people feel uncomfortable because it might require somebody to have to reconsider and perhaps relinquish some of their privilege. And frankly, people don't want to do it. So that's where um, it lies. And so I think some people here, when you tell stories of, you know, if you had children of different races sitting in a classroom and you have a teacher tell them um, that, you know, if you were white 70 years ago, um, you could go to what was the equivalent of Six Flags, but the black kids couldn't. Um, you know, on a normal weekend, or you wouldn't be in the same classroom. Um, one of you would have a night, the white kids would have a nice school. The black kids would probably all be crowded into a smaller school. And if we go back 80 years, depending on what part of the country you lived in, you might have graduated from high school after the 11th grade. You would have had secondhand books and all of these kinds of things. And think about what that means in terms of qualifying for jobs or qualifying for college. Or even if you are of color and you had those kinds of credentials, and you still couldn't get a job. Um, so you ended up doing something that another comparably situated white person wouldn't have had to contend with. Yeah, I mean, you want people to internalize it to do better, but you're not actually internalizing it to indict people sort of personally for saying that you should feel bad uh, because of this. You should feel bad to do something collective as part of the community. You should, you know, do this uh, to make sure that your own interpersonal dealings are bad. But there's some people who don't want to deal with that. So they've now created this thing. Um, that's terrible. And they don't want to have those kinds of discussions because they're uncomfortable. And right now we can't guard people's comfort if we're actually going to move forward as a, as a, as a community, as a society. All right. Professor Gillespie, I want to sit in your classroom and raise my hand and have you ask, say, what do you need, Bill? Professor, what exactly do we mean when we talk about intersectionality, which has become an important part of this whole conversation? Just Quickly, tell us what we're talking about. So um, intersectionality is also something that comes out of critical race theory, and it talks about making sure that when we talk about inequality and privilege, we understand that people are seated in different places, not just because of a racial identity, but also because of other identities as well. And so that means that even when people might fall broadly under certain types of categories, like being African-American or being a person of color broadly defined, that they may have other advantages based on other parts of their identities that give them advantages relative to other people within their group. So, you know, the first intersection that we usually talk about is the intersection of race and gender. So, for instance, the experiences of black women are different from the experiences of black men. Um, and so you can't qualitatively lump all black people together, create a policy that benefits black men and expect it to necessarily operate in the, in the exact same way for 
um, black women. The same thing, you know, if, if we wanted to talk about the intersection of race, gender, and class, race, gender, um, and sexuality, race, gender, and ability, like there are all these things that people think about that also really sort of provide nuance to power. Um, and understanding of it, that even within a marginalized group, sometimes there's some people who are more powerful than others because they have these other identities that give them more power um, and more agency and more respectability. All right. Thank you for that. That really helped me, at least, uh, understand a little better what we're talking about when we dis- discuss intersectionality. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break and come back. We got a lot more to talk about with our panel on today's Political Rewind. <laughs> State Representative Terry Anulowitz of Smyrna, Leo Smith, Andra Gillespie, Kevin Riley joining me today for Political Rewind. Kevin, I, I want to uh, make a, an admission here. There are sometimes there are stories that uh, demand our attention that I almost wish we didn't have to talk about because they give exposure to people who are really seeking that exposure when they make kind of outrageous statements or take actions that are clearly designed to put them in the media. And we're going to do that now. And you go through that same issue at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, right, Kevin? Absolutely. I mean, you. Uh, my, my favorite uh, version of it is that uh, you will have a very incremental uh, uh, development on one side of the aisle politically, and uh, one of the networks spends the whole evening ranting and raving about it, and we'll run a few sentences on it because it's really not that significant. And my inbox will fill up about how we are ignoring the most important story in America based on someone who watched cable news last we're having problems with uh, Kevin's audio. Sam Burmis does. I, I know you'll work on it. Um, why don't we move on while Sam tries to help uh, restore uh, the audio? Uh, Terry Nullowitz, what, what I'm talking about here is Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Andrew Clyde, Jody Heiss, uh, some of the more conservative members, some of the co- most conservative members of the Georgia congressional delegation are all in the news. And we, we talk about them because, in fact, they are elected representatives <laughs> from the state of Georgia. Um, so just to start on a few items that involve them, um, Andrew Clyde has found himself in uh, uh, found himself yesterday or the day before in an elevator with um, um, a DC Metropolitan Police officer, uh, Michael Fanone, who actually had traumatic brain injury and then a heart attack after being uh, involved in defending the Capitol against the insurrection on January sixth. And Fanon talked to uh, CNN about the fact that Andrew Clyde um, refused to acknowledge him in the elevator uh, when when uh, Fanon extended his hand, wanted to shake his hand, wanted to talk to Clyde about the insurrection in hopes that Congress would look into it. Um, and Clyde uh, uh, allegedly, according to Fanon, said to him, I don't know who you are. So the officer said, well, here's who I am. Here's what happened to me. And Clyde essentially uh, turned away and rushed out of the elevator as soon as it, as it reached the floor. And this is part of a larger story, which is that Clyde became one of three Georgia congresspeople who would not um, vote to award uh, gold medals, part of the Congressional Medal of Honor system, to uh, police forces that defended the Capitol against the insurrection. 
this this is part of this larger narrative that January 6th, well, it didn't really happen. Look at different directions. That's exactly right. It is vexing and I think it's a little tacky. It's, it's vex, but, it, but it's very vexing that Clyde would not shake anybody, you know, shake this person's hand. This is some, you know, again, it's a very intimate situation. It's an elevator for no one introduced himself as a police officer. You, it's just a thing you do. And if, if you, if you, it's, yeah, it, it's a thing that you do. It is vexing. We're talking about creating wedge issues that, that we have these three in the delegation who are challenging the, the reality, you know, Clyde saying this, this was, a, this was no different than a tourist visit. They're challenging the reality of what happened on January 6th and they're using it as a way to generate both support for themselves and, and controversy you know, about the fact that this is a thing that actually happened. And this is a thing that there does need to be a reckoning and to not shake the, the hand of a police officer who was tased and suffered a heart attack and was threatened to be killed with his own gun at the hands of some of these these insurrectionists, I think is really appalling. Leo? Yeah, I mean, it is indeed appalling. I, I hear all kinds of reasons for sort of avoiding people in, um, in elevators when you're at the state capitol or the nation's capital. I mean, gender and gender in, uh, the uh, appearance of impropriety with women is usually one of the things I hear Republicans talk about a lot. I never heard of them saying, I want to flee from a police officer or because of that. And so that's unusual. And I, I really, it stuns me that that is, that, that was a private situation. It, so there's not even any messaging that can come out of this that you could, you know, pound your chest about. And I really don't understand some of the things that Andrew Clyde does. Um, I, I, I can't speak to it. Bill, let me, let me add to that. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. Um, I'm finally back connected. Sorry about that uh, little problem. Um, uh, Let me just say something very simple in our world, whether you're a politician, a CEO, a reporter, or a college professor. Thanking someone for the job they do is always a good idea, whether it's a difficult political or social uh, situation, but especially people who do jobs where their safety, health, or even lives are at risk. It's, it is not a statement. It is never dangerous to look someone in the eye and simply say, thank you. In the same way, it's never a problem to say, I'm sorry. So I don't understand anyone who acts that way. And I don't understand anyone who believes that somehow there's, there's political points in behaving that way. Andra, uh, just to get you in, go ahead, jump in. On the other hand, though, it's entirely consistent. So if Representative Clyde is going to say that that was a tourist event, and, you know, as a tourist, I've never walked up the front steps of the U.S. Capitol. So, like, again, let's just call that, for what, you know, what it is, call that out from just being nonsensical. But if you think it was a tourist event, if you think that the election was stolen um, and, and you don't think that January 6th was that big of a deal, then you don't think that the sacrifice that Officer Fanon made was meaningful or valuable in any kind of way. I mean, what's inconsistent is sort of the larger sort of notion of supporting police officers. So when the chips are down, you really don't, like when it's inconvenient for you. But at least Representative Clyde is being kind of consistent. And what he was confronting was uh, – 
uh, you know, somebody who embodied a disruption of his narrative. Um, and that's all that we're doing. When we talk about what we talked about in the last segment, right, we construct narratives that help to shape our worldview and help us to d- define and justify ourselves. And then when presented with conflicting information that disrupts it, you know, we would hope that the good thing to do would be to update. Um, but no, what most people do is resist. And so he was resisting. And so that was the reason why he was being rude. He reacted in a way that was psychologically consistent with what his statements had been before and was probably how he was dealing with the cognitive dissonance of saying that everything that I've said before just is completely sort of like blown to smithereens when I see this man who actually sort of had to take a beating. I'm not sort of had to take a beating, you know, in order to sort of help to advance the lie that I am continuing to do. And I'm sure it made him really uncomfortable. But again, right, I can't, I'm not worried about people's comfort when it comes to talking about the truth. And so that's something he's going to have to reckon with himself about. So, Terry, um, again, when it came to honoring the, the law enforcement agencies that defended the Capitol, um, uh, the, uh, the three Georgians, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jody Heiss, and Andrew Clyde, voted against honoring them. And, and here's what their uh, rationale is. Uh, Green says she objected to language in the measure that called the January 6th attack an insurrection. And and that plays into exactly what we're talking about here, this effort by Republicans to somehow uh, completely uh, frame this in an entirely new way, Terry. No, that's exactly right. And I'm really struck by what Andre just said about, you know, when when the narrative that you've constructed to be the foundation of your reality is challenged, it can be really, really difficult. And they have constructed not just a narrative, but an empire, right? I mean, they are, Marjorie Taylor Greene especially, but also Andrew Claude, you know, Jody Heiss is running statewide for Secretary of State. They have constructed an empire and a, a political economy really, and in which there, there, is a, there are a lot of dollars at stake. And in order for these dollars to continue flowing in, they, you know, they, they have all of these, you know, sort of weird, oh, I say weird, not mainstream, and I, I think probably you could say alt-right media outlets that they are constantly talking to. They have, you know, people have these YouTube channels. They have this whole almost parallel system of communication with their constituents that I think most politicians don't don't use and would choose not to use for very valid reasons, because these tend to be people and outlets, you know, the, the Alex Joneses of the world, you know, the, the pe- people who trade in creating a, a, a narrative that is not based in reality. And I think that one of the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andrew Clyde, you know, these, Jody Heiss, the thing, one of the things that they're talking about is that this when you bring up the facts, when you bring up the reality, when you call this for what it is, which was an, in, an insurrection, you challenge the foundation of this empire that, that they've created. And I think there's a, there, there's a lot of money at stake, and I think that's what a lot of it comes down to for them. Uh, we should also point out that uh, all of this comes at a time when the news has broken that we're, there have been several more Georgians arrested for their participation in the uh, insurrection, in the riot. Um, an Alpharetta roofing contractor, a former Marine, uh, was arrested now for, for attacking two police officers. There's a, a police body camera video showing Kevin Douglas Creek kicking and punching uh, police. So it isn't as if there isn't video evidence of what happened. But here's the other thing about this, Kevin, that is really uh, odd to me. Um, 
And, and he, here's what Jody Heiss said about voting against the medal, and, and, and it'll make the point. He said, I've consistently condemned political violence of any kind, whether it happened here at the Capitol or in cities across America. Um, and he also says, you know, he's a supporter of law enforcement. But, but that's what's interesting. Back the blue, Kevin, has always been kind of a Republican talking point. And yet, uh, they're, they go against the grain in not being willing to, uh, to, to back the blue in an instance like this. Yeah, as, as Andre pointed out, I mean, it's inconvenient in, in this case. And, uh, and confronted with uh, just a, the truth before them about what really went on and what these officers had to do, it, it doesn't fit into their narrative. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to get your head around the illogic of all of this. Um, although I think Terry's explanation of they've got their private little economy going, and in the end, uh, that's what they're serving. And the, every, if you start to frame it that way, you can understand it, almost predict what they're going to say and do. Leo, where, where, where are Republicans headed in this election cycle when it comes to things like this? Well, I mean, look, we're completely disruptive. We're rudderless when it comes to moral leadership. Um, <laughs> a party that used to be about values and principles is now about grifting. And, you know, one of the signs to me that's extremely disturbing um, that as to what we're saying, and Republicans and conservatives like myself are very concerned, and they are very concerned. When I was at the GOP convention down in Jekyll, there were actually people, candidates, who were running campaigns taking donations who said, I'm not interested in qualifying. That's how much of a money game it's become to just say outrageous things and keep funneling that and saying more outrageous things so you can just raise money. Marjorie Taylor Greene, when I'm up in Rome, when I'm in Green Gold, um, there, there are people there know that she's not representing them. And that's a very sad state that we're in. Republicans deserve better leadership. Um, and yet, the, the, you say that, but, but there's nothing to suggest that the base, at least in primary campaigns, isn't going to be uh, supportive of the, in, the incumbents if they should be challenged at all. Well, because the other side, as message, is far worse. Socialism, uh, evil cancel culture. Um, so, so we've done such a good job of getting away from actually governance <laughs> the, the agendas that go with governance, and we're just this name slinging. It is valuable on actually both sides. I mean, but you know, we've had political machines on both sides that have not been based in reality. Republicans are gaslighting that right now, and it's turned into a money game for for such a huge class of people. No, I. Terry, I yeah, I completely, I completely agree. I mean, you know, when I when I jot down notes, like so much of what I see, especially when I see these these far right, very off out of the mainstream kind of you know conspiracies, right? When you have you have a large group of people who are working together to conspire to take a lot of money from a lot of people, and and I think that it is appalling. I think that there is no moral leader. I agree with Leo that I'm not seeing a whole lot of moral leadership in the GOP right now. And because there is that that lack of, of moral clarity, you know, sort of what are the guiding principles of the Republican Party right now, it's only going to continue and it's only going to grow. I, do, I don't 
see a way out for the GOP right now, especially because they are dominated by grifters. Um, Okay, before we get to our break, one last story that involves the most conservative members of our Georgia congressional delegation. Um, It's well known, we've covered it, so is everybody else, that Marjorie Taylor Greene really got herself into hot water, even with Republican leadership, when she compared the mask mandate that Nancy Pelosi continues to impose in the House uh, to the Nazi campaign to force Jews to wear uh, yellow stars. Uh, and, and, and she decided that those were similar and comparable uh, activities. She was condemned for anti-Semitic remarks, for making an awful comparison. We should say there's an interesting update to the story. Um, she made an unannounced visit to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, not long ago, which, for those of you who have been there, you know, is, is a devastating, devastating look at the history of uh, the extermination of Jews during World War II. And uh, she came out and actually apologized. Let's listen to part of what she said. I have made a mistake, and it's really bothered me for a couple of weeks now. And so I definitely want to own it. The horrors of the Holocaust are something that some people don't even believe happened, and some people deny, but there is no comparison to the Holocaust. And there are words that I have said and remarks that I've made that I know are offensive, and for that I want to apologize. Anti-Semitism is true hate, and I saw that today at the Holocaust Museum. And I think it's something that we should all remember and never forget. So, Kevin, Marjorie Taylor Greene, in her fairly brief career as a public figure, has made a lot of really outrageous statements. This is the first time I can remember her apologizing uh, publicly for any of her remarks. And unfortunately, it's hard not to say, hmm, what was that about? Yeah, I'm with you, Bill. I mean, in the end, you really wish you could simply take a person's apology at face value and believe it was sincere. But, okay, say that kind of stuff. Go visit that museum, which I have have visited, and it is a a powerful uh, experience to do that. And then come out and and say, you know, kind of talk around it for a while and and then finally uh, apologize uh, it's it, it just, um, I hope it's sincere. Maybe she's uh, going to be a different politician going forward, but I don't know that anyone would bet on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that I would bet on that first. Um, I applaud anybody who's willing to go educate themselves um, and especially try to view life kind of, you know, through the lens of somebody else to just get a sense of that and to develop empathy. Um, I think to take it seriously, though, there has to be sort of evidence of repentance. Um, and by that, I mean 180-degree shift. And so I think that's why people are skeptical. So she can say that and then vote against giving the congressional um, medal to the January 6th police officers. That's what's inconsistent. Um, you know, she was asked, you know, do you still call Democrats Nazis? And she still says yes because— you know, the formal name of the Nazi party is the National Socialist Party. And that's just one, a fundamental misunderstanding. Like, that's just, like, that's a, like, using, like, a seven-year-old mindset that I'm going to take literal definitions and not understand that, like, that ideologically is different in, you know, Weimar Germany. 
versus sort of like how we would construe socialism today. That just is a profound historical misunderstanding that hasn't been corrected yet. And, you know, I had thought about it before, but, you know, when I heard television commentators pointing out that this might be perhaps to give her the moral high ground against Ilhan Omar, who's made anti-Semitic comments in the, in the past week. And it's just like, yeah, you know what? Um, we can deal with Representative Omar's comments and the Democratic caucus, you know, issued a statement to try to sort of, uh, you know, chastise and to clarify sort of what the what the caucus's position is relative to that. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene, by visiting the Holocaust Museum, doesn't have any moral authority to point any fingers at Ilhan Omar for anything that she said. Yeah. But yet she wants to do that and go after Anthony Fauci. Like it's just it's a little too much. And so it's going to take a lot more work for me to be convinced. <laughs> Terry, get the last word in before the break. Yes, I'm going to, you know, a couple of things. One, acknowledging that the Holocaust was bad is the baseline. And I don't know, you know, how much commending that necessarily merits. But what I was really struck with trying to figure out with watching that, because she didn't really invite the media, you know, there are some media there, but she didn't invite them. Who was her audience? Because she didn't share her remarks on any of her social media channels, you know, I don't think they were shared with many of the, you know, the, the other folks that we mentioned with the YouTube channels, things like that. Who was her audience? And, you know, was it her own leadership in the house, you know, letting them know that she could, you know, play along and, you know, acknowledge again, that baseline that the Holocaust was bad. Was, was, was it, as Andra said, to establish, you know, sort of a, a, a base that, you know, she's saying this is bad. So, you know, it's but that's that's what I can't figure out is who exactly her audience was. And I think that's a question that we're all more aware of coming off of four years of, of, of a lot of cable news where you had people whose audience was not the audience out there at home watching the TV. The audience was one person sitting in the White House. So that's what I'm trying to figure out is who was Marjorie Taylor Greene's audience for this? Okay, uh, I got to get to the final break of the show. I do want to say, Andra, I think, makes a really important point. It's, you've got to applaud anyone who decides they're willing to educate themselves. Um, now, what happens after that visit to the Holocaust Memorial Museum is a different matter entirely, but good for her for at least going because it is an important destination in the United States. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll be back in just a moment. We are rapidly running out of time for today's Political Rewind. I do want to make a quick program note. Tomorrow we're going to look at uh, what happened this week at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. There were some pretty controversial doings that uh, uh, took place there that reveal a lot about the, the split that is uh, happening in that right now. Uh, Randall Balmer, professor of religion from Dartmouth, will be on the show along with Tia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Okay, uh, real quick, Kevin Riley, uh, the jolt this morning just came out, and it revealed to us that Kelly Leffler was in Washington yesterday. She told CNN in an interview, yep, I am really thinking about maybe I shouldn't rule out running against Raphael Warnock. Kevin, what would... What do we make of that possible entry into the race? Yeah, I, well, of course, uh, if she wants to remain relevant, she's not going to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to run. Uh, and, and, and she has created her, uh, you know, get out the vote Republican uh, uh, organization. So um, I don't see any reason why she would say she's made a decision before she has to. And I don't, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Makes sense. Leo? 
You know, and, and, and actually her get-out-the-vote Republican effort, uh, Greater Georgia, has been well-received by Republicans, better received than many expected it to be, because it's proven already effective with some door-knocking campaigns, et cetera. I think that's put sort of a, a, a new new uh, pep in her step when it comes to politics. She had a really bad taste in her mouth as Republicans and Donald Trump treated her pretty poorly when she had a moment of consciousness about uh, January 6th. Uh, So now she's actually doing real grassroots work, and this is the first time she's really done it. And I think she's getting a better taste in her mouth about politics, and that's a good thing. And I think it shows a good contrast for Republicans when right now uh, Republicans are mostly rallying against, uh, you know, this idea of tyranny on their psyche. And so here she is doing the the block and tackle, the brass tacks. Terry, she has a long way to go to become a more effective candidate if, in fact, she decides she's going to run against, uh, hope to run against Warnock. I, I, I agree. And the, the same things that made her a flawed candidate to begin with still are, are still part of who she is if she becomes a candidate in the future. But to Leo's point in talking about you know, her Greater Georgia organization, Money goes a long way in funding an effective grassroots outreach program, and I think that we would be remiss if we if we dismissed the importance of the fact that she's got a lot of money, and if you can get motivated folks, and you know we have politicians in Washington who are continu- continuing to motivate folks for better or worse, you can you can you could be formidable, especially in more down ballot elections. So that's something that we need Honor, to let me remember. Give you- Ooh, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Honor, let me give you a chance to get a last word in before we leave. Well, all I would add to that is that she let her campaigns work regardless of party. So that's what advice I would give to anybody regardless of their partisan orientation. So, um, And I would agree uh, with Terry that, you know, uh, uh, Kelly Leffler, if she runs the same campaign that she did last time, it, it, it was alienating. It's problematic. I think, you know, it was morally wrong. And so there are things that I hope she would reconsider if she does choose to run against Senator Warnock again. All right, that's it for today's show, uh, Professor Andre Gillespie, uh, Leonardo Smith, uh, Terry Anulowitz, and uh, Kevin Riley. Thank you so much for a, a really fascinating conversation on today's show. As, as I said, tomorrow, um, at least a good portion of the show, we're going to look at what happened at the Southern Baptist, is, what is happening uh, in Nashville, the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting with Randall Balmer from Dar- Dartmouth, who, by the way, uh, I mentioned him on the show the other day. He wrote a fascinating book about Jimmy Carter's interactions with Baptists when, before he was president and during his presidency, called Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter, in which he documents how Carter went from being a darling of the Southern Baptists to being someone they worked to get out of office a few years later. So Bomber understands what's happening with Southern, with Southern Baptists, and we'll talk about that on the show tomorrow. Uh, That's it for us for today. I'm Bill Nygut. Until I see you tomorrow, take care, stay healthy. I know you've probably been vaccinated, which means you have freedom again to be out in the world. But if you haven't been, do it and uh, take care of yourselves, all of you. Thanks for being with us. I'll see you all tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.